Welcome to Fick Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income, credit currency, and commodity strategists and analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence Fick Research Team. While money has been pouring at mutual funds this year, the same cannot be said for alternative products such as separately managed account platforms and especially exchange-traded funds. In fact, growth in muni ETFs has outpaced that of equity ETFs and all other fixed-income ETFs. This makes ETFs an area worth exploring as markets become even more volatile during the remainder of this year. During the course of our Masters of the Universe recordings, we've typically looked for external voices to help us explore various aspects of the market. However, sometimes getting an internal look at the market is just as useful. On this month's podcast, myself and my co-host, Amanda, are pleased to be joined by Bloomberg Intelligence's ETF expert, Eric Balchunas. For those not in the know, Eric is our senior ETF analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence, where he leads the ETF and passive fund research and contributes to Bloomberg Opinion. He's also a frequent speaker at industry events and conferences, as well as co-creator of the Bloomberg podcast Trillions and Bloomberg TV's ETF IQ. Also, Eric's the author of The Institutional ETF Toolbox and most recently, The Bogle Effect, as well as a self-described Star Wars expert and diehard Eagles fan, neither of which points will hold against him. Eric, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Eric. The Eagles are 2-0 this year, so I, uh, you, uh, th- there is no shame in that. No, no, I was going more for the Star Wars uh, <laughs> thing when I said that, you know, we won't well, hold that against you. Ha- have you had Ira on, Ira Jersey? Not yet, no. Okay. Uh, I think we're going to have him on after he gets back from his stay on the Galactic Cruiser uh, next. <laughs> yeah, he's on another level. Uh, so he'll he. I do enjoy Star Wars. I don't like the sequels, but um, he's he's probably he knows so much more than me. But yeah, I definitely love that. Grew up with it, so I love it. Yeah, well, we'll get back to that later in the podcast. Trust me. Um, <laughs> so why don't we get started? Let's, look, obviously, there's been a lot of volatility in fixed income markets this year and a lot of hand-wringing when it comes to people in the muni market because all this money, you know, from these top-line numbers are, are just sort of flowing out. But, you know, I keep pointing out these silver linings, which really have surrounded, like, SMAs, um, you know, some of these passive products, and especially ETFs. And, and that's why I thought it would be useful to have you come in and just sort of give us some context and, you know, some sort of, like, explanation as to why they continue to, to be bringing in money while everybody else is sort of, you know, raising cash and losing money. Yeah, I mean, the, the the move over to the ETF structure, to me, is somewhat cons- uh, similar to the move from compact disc to the MP3. You know, the MP3 came and was just a better format. Uh, it was flexible. You could pick and choose your music. You spend a lot less money on it. Um, every now and then, an industry just has a disruptive technology, and that's what the ETF is. Uh, th- this year, um, I was just looking at the flows, and we have about $13 billion into muni ETFs. Which is a, a good, that's a good amount of money given the Fed is just, you know, just completely antagonistic towards the bond market. I mean, all these funds are down, it, it, they're all down, first of all. Some are down 9, 10%, like the two biggest ones are down 10%, and they've taken in 9 billion between them. That's a good sign because if you can take in flows when it's really dark out and it's a rough era time, you're, that's, it sets you up nicely for the future. On the flip, the, act, the mutual fund side, um, there's hardly any passive muni mutual funds, but uh, almost all of them are active. They've seen 93 billion in outflows. So it's not like all the money that's left the muni mutual funds has gone into the ETFs. And we don't even know if that money, 
that $13 billion left a mutual fund to go to an ETF. But here's what we do know. Generally speaking, over time, people withdraw from mutual funds. They're typically older investors. And when new money comes into the market, it will usually choose the ETF. So it's not a, a total thing we can track perfectly. But generally speaking, this is consistent with other asset classes. And again, it's because ETFs are, you know, you got the intraday liquidity. They're very low cost. The two biggest ones charge seven and five basis points. Um, and I think, you know, the biggest thing for bond ETFs in particular is I think they they really spoke to the fact that everybody wants to trade bonds like stocks. And there was no real electronic exchange for bonds. So ETFs kind of fill that void. And now you can trade a muni bond basket as if you're trading shares of Microsoft. I mean, that has pluses and minuses, right? Because like you bring up stocks, I can express negative sentiment in stocks by shorting them, right? Obviously like bonds are a different animal, especially muni bonds where there's really no natural short. So, I mean, are, are you surprised that it's gained in popularity, especially given the fact that they are very dissimilar to stocks, right? They are very dissimilar in the sort of the ability to take the other side of that trade. Well, again, um, you know, the, the, the idea of being like, for, you know, if you're, there's all different things going on in ETFs. Okay. They're, they're used by different, different player types. I would say that MUB, M-U-B is probably used the most by institutions. So if you're an institution and you are managing a massive account and you just want beta to munis real quick, let's say you're firing one muni manager and you haven't hired the next, bam, you just throw MUB in there. So you don't lose, or you get new cash. You can equitize it using MUB quickly. And we see a lot of people do that. Or a, actually an active muni bond manager who has a mutual fund may use MUB as a liquidity sleeve. So like if you have MUB there, you don't have cash drag. And if somebody gets out of the fund, you can sell your MUB first before disturbing your picks. Um, so we've seen that uh, with bond ETFs and people like that. They also like the options on them. You know, you can really hedge yourself either by shorting MUB or using options on MUB. Um, so I think MUB is used uh, quite a bit um, almost like a derivative uh, for institutions. I think VTEB, which is the Vanguard one, probably a little more from the retail and advisor world because it's five basis points. Um, and if you want muni exposure, um, this will give you a very cheap and deep, so we call Vanguard cheap and deep, uh, basket of bonds. And for many advisors, they've somewhat soured on active. I will say the bond side has a little more love from advisors. Um, I think bond managers... Uh, have sidestepped the passive thing a little better than the stock pickers. But still, you're an advisor. You started to learn that you love passive, you love low cost, you love Vanguard. Um, and for your muni bucket, VTEB fits perfectly in there. So I think, uh, and there's, a, you know, obviously there's 71 muni bond ETFs, but those two, I think, kind of capture the two parties, the two different player types that are using these things. And they have different purposes uh, for using them. Um, and that's part of why the ETF, like I said earlier, is so popular. It's like a Swiss army knife. Some people like it for the liquidity. Some people like it for the low cost. Some people like it for the tax efficiency uh, or all the above. There's many different purposes for it. And uh, that's why I almost refer to it as a technology more than a, uh, you know, a fund. Eric, you mentioned that passively run strategies um, within the mutual fund space in, in the muni world wasn't really um, very common before ETFs came on the scene. Why is that so unusual within um, the ETF space? Yeah, this is really unique to munis. Um, possibly I could uncover somewhere else, but I've never seen this. <clears throat> Typically, the, the ETF came out in 1993. 
Um, and it took 10, 15 years for it to even evolve into bonds and get popular. So let's just say 2000 is when the ETF really arrived. Well, Vanguard had been around for about 25 years at that point, And Bogle and Vanguard had launched index funds for a variety of areas. And normally what you see is a good chunk of money in index mutual funds. And then the ETF comes out and some people prefer their passive through the ETF, but some still use index funds. In the case of munis, there's almost no assets in index mutual funds, which tells you that people went all active all the time. Like passive made no inroads up until the ETF. Um, and I'm, I, my theory on that, again, someone may have a better theory, but my theory on that is that Muni's is one of those places, as is high yield, where active crushes the indexes. They really do well uh, as a holistic view. I also think um, Muni's, so there was less of a case for passive. Um, there's also, so, and when the ETF came out, uh, A, the liquidity factor, was was good. People liked the fact, again, we just talked about this, that bonds could now be traded like stocks. That probably helped it. I also think that the Muni ETF issuers did a really good job of slicing and dicing the market into different categories. Um, and again, what, what ETFs do is they sort of let you be the active manager. You now can pick your allocations and what kind of Munis, what states, and that kind of thing. Um, but that said, that is an interesting dynamic. Maybe you guys have a different theory, but normally... You have 900 billion in active muni mutual funds and 2 billion in index muni mutual funds. Normally that ratio isn't two, uh, what is that, 2%? Um, that, that's gonna be more like, hold on a second, that's not 2%. 2 billion of 900, of a tr- of, 2 billion of a trillion is what? 0.2%. Hold on, let me say that again then. So, you know, you have 2 billion in index, yeah. Or it's just the that that's not even bond math. That's just math. Yeah, yeah. That's like fourth grade. Uh, <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> All right. Take two. So it's just weird that you have two billion in index muni mutual funds, and almost a trillion in active muni mutual funds. That's 02 percent. That number is typically going to be ten percent in other categories. So it's almost as if the passive thing just never hit back in the day like it did elsewhere. It only hit when the ETF arrived. And so that's interesting. I, I was kind of surprised to learn that when I was uh, prepping for this. But it's, um, again, probably because of the idea that muni managers tend to do way better. Like the the rap on the active manager uh, being not, not great is way, way hard, more um, sticky on the equity side. I think bond managers for, for a lot of people provide a value because bonds are harder. There's more to know. You've time. The element of time makes it like playing chess instead of checkers. Um, so I think that's probably why. I, I wonder if it's because munis just have this reputation of being um, like so arcane. There's so many issuers, so many QSIPs out there. So I wonder if that's what's made you know active management a little bit stickier in the muni space. Another thing I was shocked by was when you rank all the muni mutual funds by assets. Uh, and again, these this would be all active because that's all there are. Um, Vanguard has the top two, and I think six of the top ten. Um, that is crazy because again, a people think of Vanguard as a passive shop, but they really have done well there in the active. And this might be also part of the reason the passive hasn't caught on. Their active's pretty cheap. I mean, looks like it's between like nine and twenty bips, um, or you know, it's 0.09 percent and 0.20 percent. That's really low cost. Um, 
and they're probably pretty conservative, low turnover. That tends to be their style. So I will say what, what, I, what is consistent with the other categories is what I call the great cost migration. So even though you didn't have that like passive um, index fund component of the muni thing, you did have the move to low cost. So clearly Vanguard has uh, attracted people for those low fees. They just happen to be picking Vanguard's active funds. Although VTEB, which is their ETF, is now at $17 billion, which is which is pretty good because it's not, it's not that old. Um, so I think it'd be interesting. I would be interested to see if Vanguard launches some of these muni mutual funds in ETF format. They probably do really well, but they haven't yet. You commented that you know Vanguard has six of the top ten funds in munis, which is which is I guess startling to you or surprising to you as you sort of look across the landscape of you know who, where the assets lie. You know, is that something that you're seeing? Like, where they're a leader in, let's say, oh yeah, corporate or or equity ETFs. Where yeah. is that sort of unique to munis? No, it's not. So I looked. Vanguard has a 24 percent market share of all the muni mutual fund assets. Um, and they are 20% market share in ETFs. So we'll, com- we'll combine those. We'll call them 23% market share of all muni funds and ETFs. They're 27% market share of all U.S. funds. So if anything, their muni is dominant. As I just said, they're in munis. They're more dominant elsewhere, um, which, is, which is, let me give you a perspective on that. 27% market share of all fund assets is double the last high watermark set by Fidelity. So Van... Van- this is why I wrote a book about this, because when you look at this data, it's mind-blowing, and Vanguard isn't public. So even people at BI don't really know a lot about this company, but they are absolutely dominant. And what makes them so uh, fascinating and beloved by investors is they only account for about 5% of the industry revenue. So 27% asset share, 5% revenue share, that gap is basically why they're so beloved. But also, I think it, for, it, it foreshadows a bit of pain and reckoning coming to the industry as investors just go they want to go cheap and this is uh this what this one company which is mutually owned the funds own the company and the investors own the funds so every time um they get profits or extra assets they vote instead of to use the profits for this or that they just say hey just lower the fees because the people who own the company are the investors and that has been their gun in a knife fight for 40 years. Um, so I don't really see anything stopping this. Um, and it is interesting that they can come out with one ETF and already they're second in the category with a 20% share. But I would expect over time they're going to get to 30 40% at least of all fund assets. My guess is the government regulates them. I, I just don't think they can be stopped uh, at all by competitors. I think it's going to take uh, the government to stop them. That's how that's how much mojo and inertia they have and trust. They built up a lot of goodwill. So um, it's just at some point you can't own all the bonds. <laughs> well, it's especially true in munis. And that was something I was like thinking about as we we're prepping for the podcast. Right. You know, we talk a lot about supply demand dynamics in our space. And I think one of the challenge for just any muni product is the ability to source bonds. So I just like, do you see that as sort of a really big growth impediment to not just VTEB, but like any of the ETF products, just, you know, as cash is pouring into these sort of low beta options, their ability to actually, you know, fill investors with bonds, because as I understand it, ETFs are also being used as a way for, uh, you know, buyers to get access to cash bonds that they can't get in the primary market, right? Just redeeming shares of the ETF. Yeah, no, the ETF has become a bit of a, the new bond dealer, no doubt. 
and people will take the bonds to the ETF issuer um, and get the ETF back and just sell it, or vice versa. Uh, maybe they, they want to buy the ETF up because it's cheap to buy in the open market, get a bunch of bonds, and then you know sort of pick out the ones they want. Um, yeah, no, this is a, a definitely a true thing. Um, to your point about sourcing the bonds, getting the bonds, and the bond market being opaque, as Amanda mentioned earlier, this is where I think bond managers and mutual funds are going to survive longer than stock pickers and mutual funds. I think it's just, you know, with illiquid markets, it's a mutual fund can make more sense than an ETF. And if you look at the numbers, ETFs, because they have to own the more liquid stuff, they tend to be easier to beat because somebody can go beyond those liquid issues into the more, you know, illiquid stuff. Um, I will say this idea that like ETFs are uh, like Hotel California, like, you, you know, you can go into a bond ETF, but you can never leave because once there's a sell off, it's going to freeze. It's really the opposite. And Eric and I lived through 2020 on IB all day talking about HYD, which traded at a, it was the canary in the bond discount coal mine. It traded at like a 23% discount to NAV. But you know what? It's still got 2.5 billion. People roll with it. A lot of the people trading this stuff are not my grandmother. They're people who understand that the bond is actually a price discovery vehicle because the, the if you had a bond mutual fund, you're not going to unload those bonds at the NAV of the mutual fund. That's a lie. Uh, the ETF is much more closer to what that basket's truly worth. And so I think people have learned to understand this. And yes, if there's illiquid bonds in the ETF or that are not liquid because there's a sell-off, uh, the ETF will trade on. And I think the market now kind of appreciates that, understands it. But I would say if you're a long-term bond investor and you don't need to trade, um, I would not trade in a sell-off and or I would consider going into a mutual fund uh, and, you know, somebody who could sell maybe the liquid bonds first and not have to deal with a price cut on the illiquid ones because a mutual fund, when they see outflows, unless the, unless the whole fund is a run on the fund and they have to dump everything, uh, they, they can choose which what they sell first. And so there's a little bit of an advantage there with the mutual fund, uh, you could argue. Um, but I just looked at some funds, like, you know, not all of them outperform. So I think you, you'd have to weigh, like, is my fund one that can outperform? Do I believe this? If so... You know, and again, if I'm not looking to sell, it might make sense. But um, I, there's pros and cons to both structures in the bond space. I think in the equity space, there's just been a clear cut. Oh, indexing and ETFs work much better. Uh, bonds is a much more complicated conversation because of what you just said. I, I think that's spot on. And Amanda, I remember when we had John Miller from Nuveen yeah. on? So he was telling us that, you know, during the sell off and, you know, early, mm-hmm. you know, mid 2020, you know, they went to a pool of, let's say, like more liquid, highly rated bonds that they have in their high yield portfolio to sort of throw overboard first, right? And I think that's what makes sort of active management more appealing that they have different levers to pull. But, you know, it also it's the, the opposite side of that is a little bit funny when you think about it, because you don't really get true price discovery in a product that's labeled high yield because you aren't seeing the forced selling rate. So, and we saw a lot of that sort of, you know, happen in real time with HYD where it did go to that discount. And that was probably more of an accurate peg on, you know, where sentiment was as far as lower credit in the muni market. Totally. No, I think that's such a great point. Um, I did want to ask a little bit about um, just in terms of actively run um, muni ETFs. Um, we've seen so many launches in this part of the ETF space, but it doesn't seem, it just seems like kind of at some point BlackRock and Vanguard are kind of 
um, you know, still pulling in most of the assets and, um, you know, they're really just dominating this space still, even though we, we continue to see these fund launches. So what do you think it'll take for some of these actively run products to, to start gathering inflows in the same way? Um, performance is the easy answer, but it, it's really tough because, uh, like I said, bond managers have that extra benefit of, I, I think bond, I always compared bond indexes are like the Washington Generals of benchmarks. That's the team the Harlem Globetrotters gets to play against and humiliate. But they're, they're, they're the, the big ones, the famous ones, like the AG. The AG is really, it's so easy to beat. All you got to do is like go a little bit further out in the credit, get, you know, take some high yield on, a little international, just jack up your, uh, your credit risk a little bit and you beat it. But there's other indexes coming along that have been ETFIs that are broader and better and incorporate a little high yield or international. So I think as the indexes get better and the ETFs tracking them get more liquid, it will be even tougher. That said, if you can consistently outperform, you'll get assets. And I think the bond world has that extra benefit of having a reputation, whether it's earned or not, of being better than the benchmark. But I would argue, and I, you talk to people, they would admit the benchmark is weaker and easier to beat because it's usually weighted by the debt. Whereas on the equity side, the benchmarks are weighted by market cap, which means that the stocks that managers love the best get more weighting, which gives it a little momentum. And so you got like, you got a, a momentum to beat. And the S&P is very difficult. The S&P to me is more like the 96 Chicago Bulls. If we're going to stick to basketball metaphors with Michael Jordan, it's difficult. Hardly any managers can beat it. Um, so I, I would, if I was a bond manager, though, I would keep pounding the drum that there's so many bonds. What is it like a jillion? Is that the technical term or a gazillion? Whatever. I asked Eric. It's like beyond a billion. It's like there's more bonds than stars. Yeah, I would say I, that. That's my tagline. There's more bonds than stars. You cannot index this stuff. You, let trust me. Um, so I would, I would actually continue to make that case, um, and I think that will work to a degree. My guess is what we've seen on um, with ETFs is that there's been a good dose of active managers coming into ETFs as well and doing well. On the short on the short duration side, uh, or I would say this, if you rank all the top actively managed ETFs, I think four of the top five are bonds. Uh, short duration bond, uh, like JP Morgan has one, PIMCO has one. I think there's just a good case for them to do well here. The question is, do you stay in the mutual fund format or do you maybe switch over and put your active in the ETF side? Um, but they're going to have their hands full because there's also smart beta bond indexes being built. Um, and again, there's also the idea that uh, people now are moving into this place where they want to be the active manager. Um, sort of like George W. Bush in the movie W. When he tells Dick Cheney, hey, Dick, I'm the decider. Because Dick Cheney kind of like talked over him in a lunch meeting. He's like, I'm the decider. Don't forget that. Um, people like to be the decider now. And so I think with ETFs being cheap, liquid, and they track everything in very sliced up fashion, that that person, the advisor or the institution is now the active manager. Now, whether they want to choose active for the little slice for high yield or choose beta, that's really the choice. And I think active will get used to a degree, but again, um, they might use smart beta. And so there's a lot they have to compete against. So my, my, my short answer, I would also, one more thing is, I think lowering fees would help. I think you see Vanguard having so much success on the active side, it's because they're cheaper. And with bond returns being so tough going forward, every basis point is going to count. That's not advice any of them want to hear. 
but I think lowering fees would, would probably help as well because obviously that would move them closer to the starting line. I imagine anybody listening who's managing money is like just put their fingers in their ears at this point in the podcast <laughs> and just pretending that they didn't hear that. But no, you're, you're not wrong. It's, it's interesting, right? I mean, like, you know, active has certainly attracted assets, as you pointed out, right? And, and we see that in some of the larger names like Nuveen. But, you know, I think this year, passive and, and sort of those single digit fees have been the driver of success, you know, and especially in the use case, right? You know, we, we went to the bond buyers conference earlier this year, and we're talking about separately managed account platforms and just how long it takes to actually invest a, a new sleeve of money when it comes in. And one of the things being tossed around was the ability to use ETFs as sort of like a proxy to get immediate access to the muni market and then sort of dive into the market opportunistically and buy cash bonds, you know, sort of as you go along. And I think that, you know, to pay five basis points to immediately be in munis, I think is just a home run idea that a lot of people are beginning to latch onto. Yeah, no, well, uh, we would, the technical term, we would call that as cash equitization, even though it's, I guess it's not an equity, it's bond, bondization. <laughs> but yeah, no, that's, that's a, a big use, use case. But still, remember, um, the mutual funds and the active mutual funds have 900 billion, the ETFs have uh, 80 or 90 billion. So there's still only 10%. Um, but I could see that getting to 50-50 over the next five or 10 years. Um, you know, it's, and it's okay. You know, things change, man. You know, like, um, and, you know, com- competition happens. Uh, I think, you know, like I said, though, if you're an active manager listening, I will say, as somebody who covers this all over the place, you're lucky to be in bonds. It is way harder to make the active case on the stock side. Um, so I would, I would definitely... Because I have this, I have this slide I use that people get a kick out of, which is, I have this, um, but like sort of t- uh, PowerPoint slide of two images, and it says how advisors view bond managers versus how they view stock pickers. The bond manager picture is Stephen Hawking. The stock picker picture is Bud Fox from Wall Street with a little smirk on his face, and it's true. Um, advisors in particular really have this view of bond managers being like physicists or something. Like they're operating in another dimension. They don't sleep. They eat cereal for dinner. Uh, this is just the image they have. And for stock pickers, they've got like sales guys. Like they they are, yeah, this guy doesn't know anything. He's, you know, um, I, I nope. Yeah, yeah. It's like, from the, yeah. <laughs> so for better or worse, uh, that is the way it, it is seen. Um, and I think people, the advisors just hear words like convexity and duration and it just sounds like open heart surgery to them. It's like, whoa, I don't, I don't even know what's going on. Whereas stocks, it's like price, you know, yield. I mean, they, they, they or, you know, dividends. They can understand these things easier. They know that there's like 50 analysts covering Amazon. What edge can anybody have? The efficient market hypothesis is much more applied to the stock side, where people go, what's the purpose? Nobody has an edge. I don't know if the EMH gets applied that way to the bond side. And again, that's. I think it's very fortunate if you're an active manager on that side right now. Yeah, uh, the, the other thing that um, we've seen work for active, and we write about the evolution of active. Active isn't dead, it's just evolving, is that the more people go cheap beta for the core, which would be like 60, 40, you know, very cheap, they are having this slice for what we call hot sauce. So I think 
on the equity side, if you go totally out there like a Kathy Wood or a thematic ETF, they're seeing inflows. So you have to go where the indexes can't. That's our big mantra and advice to people who are running money. So I would almost maybe tell the bond managers that. The only problem on the bond side is <laughs> the further you go out, the, the scarier it can get if there's a sell-off. So I think you, the bond manager would have to weigh that. But the more you can provide something that isn't in the index, I think the better off you are to make the case that you have brought some value add. Speaking of value add, that makes me think of two things. Let's let, let's just hop back to HYD and and sort of the canary in the coal mine point before I forget. So you know the conversations we had going back and forth were that you could really directionally predict where munis were going to go on a cash bond basis based on price action. What's interesting to me is that really has not changed. So if I look today at the, you know basically the underperformance of HYD versus cash bonds, it's almost 230 basis points, right? So that's still screaming to me that the, sort of the equity bonds are, are, are sort of the leading indicator of where high yield cash bonds should go. What's fascinating, and I don't know if you're observing this too, is if, if all you know, the markets are like pushing towards this efficient market hypothesis, why hasn't this ability for sort of you know, alpha generation been squeezed out of munis, right? If you can sort of predict the future, how has that not been sort of you know, squeezed out? and some efficiencies put back in, right? Yeah, I mean, honestly, I would defer to you on that. I think it's a great question. Um, but like I said earlier, wouldn't that be accounted for from the fact that um, bonds that are further outside of the index um, would be moving in a, in a unique way to the index itself? Mm -hmm. I, don't See, I don't know, right? Because if you look at high yield, you're still getting cash into HYD, but spreads really haven't blown out on the cash bonds, right? Even though you're you're underperforming by 230 basis points, right? It should be screaming that bonds should spread should be much wider, but there seems to be a huge disconnect, and you're just not seeing that same disconnect on the investment grade side. Yeah, um, again, you're, I'm a little out of my depths here with the uh, the spreads and the different bonds. Like, I know what they are. I, you know, I look at them sometimes, but I'm you know I don't study it every day. But I would. What's your theory? My theory is that you know high yield muni ETFs are, are just a tricky, tricky product to, to manage efficiently, right? Because you're you're managing to a benchmark that in a market that trades by appointment, by appointment, right? So you already have this sort of a liquid asset class, and then you're sort of you're really like throwing like you know propane on it, and saying you know we're going to try and create a vehicle that's going to have daily liquidity, and then you have sort of issues like this, but. It's interesting from a management standpoint that, you know, if I know that the ETF is underperformed by 200 basis points, I don't know if that's like a base case for me to hop into high yield munis until that gap narrows, right? Yeah. Um, and I just looked at the Nuveen fund that your your uh, past guest was on. He blows away HYD. I mean, if you see these returns, you'd have to go with him, I think. Um, but again, I think, again, we'll go back to the George W. Bush decider. I think HYD is popular because of that idea of, I don't, I want, I, I don't really need active. I'm the active manager. I just want HYD beta, like or beta at a high yield, and I'll just, you know, buy this because it, it is kind of amazing to me that HYD traded a twenty. I just looked. I think twenty nine percent discount was the record during twenty twenty, and yet it's taken in a good amount of money since then. Like, um, this is a really fascinating thing, and tells me that you can put illiquid stuff in ETFs to a degree. There's always been this case that like, oh, this is, you know, even Howard Marks, the brilliant Howard Marks 
said there will be problems. These funds are, you can't put something illiquid in something liquid, but I think you can, uh, you know, to a degree. I think, you know, I sometimes joke you could put Mickey Mantle rookie cards in an ETF and it would trade fine. It would, it would work. That's how good the ETF is. Um, but I, you know, it's probably a limit, but if you can put these high yield bonds that you, as you say, don't trade hardly at all, you know, by appointment, um, and it trades and it trades at a discount and people can accept it and trade on and still use it after that. It's a good sign that the ETFs aren't going to have like a, um, problem down the road where people get turned off because of a discount. Again, HYD is like the canary in the coal mine. And if it can survive that and be used still, uh, it's a good sign. But to your point, if I'm your past guest, I'm just showing a chart of the five-year return of me versus HYD. I mean, it's it's a no, it's night and day. This guy blows away that ETF. I would I, I would go to HYD. I would look at the holders of it. You can find that on HDS Go. And then I would look at people and I, I would call them all, <laughs> or just send them a chart. I mean, that, back to Amanda's question, that would be my response if I'm active. Uh, I would send them. I would send all the ETF holders a chart of my fund versus the ETF. Um, Eric, you you mentioned a, a statistic in passing that I thought was um, pretty nuts, but that you expect the division between Muni Mutual Fund and Muni ETF assets to be more like 50-50 during the next five to 10 years. Um, do you think that that will be like a, a painful uh, pill for the market to swallow? Or do you think that most, and this might be a question for both Eric's, if you think most market participants are kind of on board with that um, transition? Um, well, I, 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 uh, more painful is the Vanguard effect, but that's already played out given the fact that Vanguard is dominant in the muni mutual fund space and they charge so cheap. So the great cost migration clearly already playing out. That's the painful stuff. Over on the ETF side, um, some active muni ETFs, you can you can charge a, a lot more than beta and still have a, a good life. Um, maybe a good example is the senior loan space. That's also an illiquid area where active has just as much as passive. People like active in the, but they like it in the ETF format, even though that's illiquid. So again, I, I think over time, we'll see some of these bond managers package themselves into an ETF and be active. Um, and they'll probably keep the mutual fund. I wouldn't, you know, we are seeing some people convert their mutual fund right into an ETF, which is possible now. Um, my guess is they might clone themselves, put put an ETF version. This is what PIMCO kind of did with their total return fund and their Mint, which is their short duration. Um, they've had some su success with it. So my guess is the reason I say 50-50 is because it's not because passive will become so popular. It's just that active will start using ETFs to deliver their active management because there's a lot of people who prefer it in that format. Um, again, it's like the MP3. If you're a, if you're a musician, you're not going to cling to the compact disc. You'd be stupid. You know, um, you're going to eventually put your music on iTunes like many did, even the holdouts, because that's just how, that's just how the younger people want it these days. And so that's why I think the ETF will, will get up to half. It could even be more. Um, you know, I, I don't know. Um, mutual funds, like I said, in this case, there is a case for them. I will say mutual funds have a harder case in other asset classes, but in the bond space, especially munis, I could see them making a case that, uh, like Eric said, if there's a sell-off, we can actually sell, uh, what'd you call it? Throw overboard? <laughs> I like that. Throw overboard um, the, the stuff that's liquid and we can get a good price for rather than taking 
um, too big of a hit or getting like scalped on trying to sell something that's like less liquid. How big of an issue has leverage been with active managers over the last few years, right? As rates were just sort of generationally low. Uh, good question. You know, um, I, again, I can't say this, I look at the leverage of the active managers, but like, let's take the Naveen, um, you know, does that, when you had him on, did he talk about doing like leverage? I know the closed end funds, like how much leverage they do 20%. Uh, I, I think they're a little bit higher than that, but really? I mean, industry average is really about like what 30, 35% uh, on some of those funds. But I guess like what I, the point I was trying to sort of get to was that in some of the ETF products like RTAI, right? And we had the manager from Rareview on, you know, I think fall of last year, you know, that's a ETF product that, you know, uses a quite a bit of leverage and that trade really didn't work out for them this year. Uh, you know, if you look returns are, I just wasn't sure if like, you know, now that everybody sort of experienced a collective down year, if that might in your opinion, reverse the trend on using leverage? Yeah, I, I think so. Um, look, leverage is a double-edged sword. Um, and yeah, a downturn is is going to hurt that leverage. I mean, you know, I, back to the ag, I would say credit risk is also a double-edged sword. And when the sell-off in March 2020 came and caught everybody flat-footed, um, who was an active bond manager with a lot of extra credit risk, their beat rate on the ag went from like, I want to say 70% to like 5% um, over that sort of window of 2020, clearly because they, the ag, as dull and boring as it is, that can actually be good when there's a sell-off. So um, I would see leverage being something that is used more when there's a bull market. But honestly, if I'm an active manager, I might use it in a bear market too, to just accent bets on the short side or, or use you know derivatives in a certain way. Because again, um, you're going to have to really show some significant outperformance, I think, to reverse the sort of move to the cheaper Vanguard funds or to passive. Um, so leverage to me um, might be that hot sauce on the bond side that I was talking about that works so well on the equity side, where you can actually create a, like a shiny object moment. Like the Nuveen guy, he is destroying HYD. And that can actually work because, again, if people are going to use you, not you know, for, not for beta, but for like, um, uh, like almost like a like a call option, just in case you crush it, they want to participate. I think leverage would be necessary and going out beyond the index. But it's also dangerous. I mean, let's. I'm not. I don't want to advise people to take on a bunch of leverage, but uh, there's a twenty percent. You know, there's a danger factor to it, um, as you know. I mean, do you guys see, does the leverage in the muni space worry you? You know, it's interesting. So as rates really sold off earlier in the year, we saw a lot of like tabs start to unwind. And, and, you know, I was tracking performance on, you know, some of the products that I knew had a lot of leverage. And, you know, it, what was happening is what we thought would happen. I just didn't know if that would sort of result in like a sea change here that they would dial it down a bit, right? Especially in, in this space. Um, you know, where it just tends to, when it gets illiquid, it really becomes very illiquid pretty quick. Yeah, no, um, I have this theory and, and you know it, that the, 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 what we need to watch is for mutual funds, um, freezing up or halting redemptions. So this is a risk, um, in, in 2020, which was a shock event, uh, there were mutual funds on the bond side in India that had to close, uh, I mean, freeze halt redemptions. 
And I think we were getting close to that here in 2020, but the Fed stepped in and provided massive liquidity. So luckily this year in this sell-off, the sell-off and the outflows from bond mutual funds has been orderly. That's been the one thing that's stopped us from having that moment of like, is there too much leverage? Uh, are people into illiquid of bonds? We haven't really had to have that conversation because the outflows have been orderly and the bond market has declined like steadily. In 2020, it was a shock event where bond mutual funds saw 180 billion in outflows in two weeks. I mean, that is ridiculously shocking. And that's where I think we were gonna see some mutual funds freeze, which again was ironic because as an ETF guy, I've been hearing for years that ETFs were gonna freeze. Um, but it's the mutual funds that would halt redemptions because at some point you, you're gonna see some people pull their money out and you simply can't sell the bonds. And you're, you're either gonna take nothing, like a penny on the dollar for it or something, or you're gonna freeze and hope that down the road you can get more. So other than halting redemptions, it may be a good move for the investor. But that's the thing people have always worried about with ETFs. But the beauty of ETFs is even when the underlying is completely frozen, they will trade. Uh, they will, there will be some price discovery going on because they're in a liquid market on an exchange. Um, and people forget that ETFs uh, that track Japan, I mean, they trade every day when the underlyings are closed, right? So there's multiple cases where we've, and the one time there's a, the Egyptian um, Arab Spring closed that market for like a month or two. And the Egyptian ETF traded traded on. Um, it, it will trade at a perceived premium or discount, but it's arguably the real the real market. Um, and so we saw it with Russia. The Russia ETF traded after they did sanctions. So um, I don't know ETFs are a bit like cockroaches, I think, in that they just survive anything. They'll trade through anything pretty much. Um, and I think the mutual fund to me is is where we could have an issue. But I think if there's a shock event to the point of the 2020 probably going to have the Fed step in because a lot of the people who work at PIMCO and these big asset managers in BlackRock um, also have worked at the Fed or are friends with people at the Fed. So I don't know. I, I But in India, it gave us a case where nobody stepped in and we did see a lot of bond mutual funds halt redemptions. No, that that's super interesting. Um, I just want to say that like your references and comparisons have really just made me understand Muni ETF so much more. Um, so I just wanted to say thank you uh, because I've learned a lot from this combo. Um, I am curious just in terms of like fun ETFs. We see a lot of fun ETFs in other um, markets. Um, what's like the potential for Muni ETFs to see some of these fun overlays um, or even like I'm thinking like political overlays, like if it's an only Democratic states ETF or only Republican states ETF or something super related to ESG or social bonds. Like, I'm just curious about, and this might be a question more for both of you, if you see the potential for some of those like really fine-tuned um, funds to take off in munis. Well, Eric did say if he was creating a muni ETF, he would use the ticker POS. <laughs> but <laughs> I love when Eric tweets POS because Eric's tone on Twitter is a little cynical anyway. So when he says POS, I always think he's saying piece of SHIT. But I feel like POS would be a fun ticker. Um, like, you know, I, I was surprised that the muni space hasn't been more narrativized Narratives are huge in the other parts of the equity market in particular. In fact, narratives have been one way ETFs active has, has survived. They create narratives like, oh, invest in the cybersecurity ETF or invest in an ETF that benefits from like Democrat legislation or, you know, it's basically creating narratives that an advisor can explain and understand easily with their clients. So 
there hasn't been much of that in the muni space. I believe I saw one for Minnesota, uh, but that's a state um, or Indiana, I think. So I could see maybe more individual states and I could see narratives like I'm surprised they haven't been packaged on like stuff people know, like airports and hospitals. You know, just put the literal things in there instead of intermediate term. Blah, blah, blah. I would maybe start trying to mess with the packaging and could do things people know. Oh, here's schools. You know, who doesn't want to help build schools? It sounds more appealing than like, you know, high income muni. I, I don't know. Like I, I get that they put the need in the name. They should put the thing in the name because munis have the advantage of actually being out there touching real things in the earth and the and on uh, the in cities that we can see and we know. So I would really tap into that. I'm surprised they haven't themized munis uh, more than they have. Um, my guess is because they're probably appealing more to a trading and institutional crowd. Um, but I think over time, as the as the um, category grows, it's now at 90 billion. I would call that pretty mature. I think you'll see. I'll see. I think you'll see them experiment with it um, because. Th- Themes, by the way, thematic investing, I'm so bullish on this, way more bullish than I'm on ESG. Thematic investing is powerful because it can go anywhere. It's a chameleon. And thematic investing on the equity side has stolen thunder from both the sectors and from quants. You know, quants are sort of like in that old world of like growth, quality, value, uh, momentum. And all that's very good. Institutions understand it. And they're real factors. But a lot like a theme comes along and says, oh, we're innovation. Well, it's really growth, right? And they put these new names or like natural resources. That's really a value theme because it's going to invest in like materials and energy companies. So themes are going to come along and just repackage these sort of boring old 80s and 90s terms. And they're going to have success doing it. Um, and again, I think munis are ripe for that to be maybe the next area they hit. But the, so far, I haven't seen much. Interesting. Interesting. All right. We don't want to keep you too long. We appreciate you being here. But I do want to, uh, you know, sort of tie this up with a couple questions. One, what is your feeling on the Eagles record for this year? We're going to take predictions right now. And I will yeah. hold you to this. Sure. The I'll go with, um, they're playing 17 games now, right? I'm so used to saying like 12 and 4, 13 and 3, but okay, well, 17 games, I'll go 12 and 5. Um, I, I, here's why. It's the feeling I get when it's third and eight or third and six. I get the same feeling with Hertz as I did with Foles, where I'm like, you know, we probably got this. Something good could happen. When Wentz was the quarterback or McNabb, I felt impending doom. So every, every fan knows that third and six situation. So I like Hertz. I also like that he doesn't get too high or too low. And he seems to be a guy that the, the – other team, the other guys in the locker room love. I think he's a locker room guy, and I like that. So I'm really bullish on Hurts. I'm glad we kept him. So I'll go 12 and five. But you know, you knowing the Eagles, <laughs> you know, who knows? That's probably maybe maybe I'll 11 and six. Would you still wear your Mamola jersey if they underperform? No, no, no. I I have a Mike Kafka jersey because they, the Eagles used to have this third string quarterback named Mike Kafka. And I was watching a preseason game, and I saw Kafka on the back of a, of a football jersey. And the contrast between Franz Kafka, the existential uh, writer who died young, and football was so dramatic. I was like, I have to do this. So I wore my, I actually wore this Kafka jersey. If you, if you ever read Kafka, you realize he's the opposite of the NFL. Um, 
I wore it to to a game. I, I got mocked. I got mocked. So I haven't actually. People are like, what the hell are you wearing? Uh, third string quarterbacks don't normally. I had to go to the NFL site, the NFL store, and actually have it custom made because there, nobody was selling a Mike Kafka jersey. I think he's an assistant coach at Northwestern now, but um, I still have that in my closet. The, uh, the shirt I bust out for Eagles games now is um, I got this shirt that's the Tecmo Bowl Eagles guy scoring a touchdown. I found it at a street fair, so I wear that one. I like that one a lot. Interesting. I like it. Uh- it is. It's fascinating. Isn't this fascinating? <laughs> Best restaurant pick in Philadelphia right now? Um, well, my, my wife and I, we only get out once every like quarter for like a good date night. And we always go to steak, uh, a steakhouse. And the best one right now is Steak 48. It's on uh, Broad Street. It's expensive, but again, nothing like a juicy ribeye, you know, some, some cream spinach, maybe some uh, fried calamari appetizer. Um, so we, we, just, we just lean on that. We don't... We have kids, so we don't really know the new trendy stuff anymore. I'm sure there's a better, cooler, newer restaurant, but um, Steak 48 is a relatively new steakhouse, and it's really good. Yeah, and they also sponsor Trillions, right? <laughs> no, no, we don't no, We don't get crossover sponsors like that. I wish. Well, we'll work on that next time. All right, Eric Alchunas, it's been awesome. Um, thank you for joining us. We covered everything ETFs, Eagles, and Philadelphia Steak Restaurants. Until next time, thanks. Thanks.